Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but until quite recently, the actual existence of Sheena Easton was classified. Um, I think uh, President Trump did that by wincing while he was sitting on the toilet or something. We might be able to get into that at some point today, whether or not you can classify documents quite the way that he says that you can. Uh, But that's not really the topic of our first segment here. But let me also explain that it's a three-segment show. We sometimes call this The Scramble. Uh, And the second segment will be about another document-related decision this within the State Department under Anthony, under Anthony Blinken and involving the font, the chosen font for official communiques. And it's going from, uh, spoiler, from Times New Roman to Calibri. But we see a lot in that. And towards the end of the show today, our third segment will be about kind of a, well, a confluence that's not new and a conflation that's not new between exercise and spirituality. But Maybe one that's kind of taking ominous shapes these days. And yes, I am looking at you, Soul Cycle. But not only Soul Cycle. But to begin, we are going to talk about overclassification, or at least whether there is such a thing as overclassification. And to help us do that, Matthew Connolly is a professor of international and global history at Columbia University and the author of a forthcoming book, The Declassification Engine What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. Matthew Connolly, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Colin. So, um, in the last few months, classified documents were found in the homes of former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, President Joe Biden, on stage with Dave Chappelle in the Minnesota (laughs) Timberwolves locker room, some ducks in Central Park had some. They seem to be all over the place. So, um, we should maybe just begin by saying, well, maybe we should begin by just saying this is all a relatively new system in the scheme of things, right? In some ways, it dates back to 1951. In other ways, maybe a little bit further back into World War II. But but tell us about that. Yeah, I think it's something that's missed in a lot of the recent media coverage because, you know, I think a lot of us, uh, when we think about the government and secrecy, you know, we think of it a little bit like death and taxes, right? Like, you know, who should really be surprised that these bureaucrats want to keep things from us? But, you know, the U.S. is actually an outlier. You know, in most of our history, I'm talking about like the first 150 years, the U.S. was one of the only countries like it in the world that didn't 
create a lot of official secrets. You know, we didn't have any centralized intelligence agency. You know, unlike practically every other, you know, great power, even middling powers, you know, they would often routinely intercept communications, uh, whether we're talking about foreign diplomats or even their own citizens when they thought they were subversive. So the United States was really different. You know, we, we had a tiny army. Uh, we, we didn't have any spies, practically speaking. The only time that wasn't true was during wartime. And then when those wars ended, uh, so did a lot of the spying and so did a lot of the secret keeping. And those secrets, such as they were, were typically released right away. And I'll just tell you one other story to illustrate the point. You know, even during the Civil War, you know, the, the most colossal catastrophic conflict in our history, Abraham Lincoln decided that, in fact, it would be better for the United States, better for the Union cause, if it conducted all of its diplomacy out in the open. So each year, the State Department would publish a whole volume of diplomatic communications and they wanted to show the world that the US was was out in the open, you know, and that way Lincoln thought that more people would likely support the cause of trying to end slavery. So again, this is really more typical of the American experience right up until the Second World War. And during the Second World War, my sense is you know, first of all, the, the primary set of document seekers would be the press, and that the press, because it was on a wartime footing, was pretty cooperative about stuff like this. In other words, you had the Office of Censorship, I think, at that point, and they could say to the press, look, no, just don't print that. That's a real problem if you do. But it wasn't, we weren't quite at the, the classification system that we've got now. That's right. Uh, there was the Office of War Information, and it was, in fact, you know, the OWI that first codified a lot of these rules that we still live with today, you know, as to like different levels of secrecy, you know, how people would get cleared to see them and so on. But it was largely cooperative. You know, the uh, newspapers of the day, they didn't want to be publishing war secrets, right? So, you know, there was a, a vast apparatus, right, to, to make sure that whether willingly or not, um, you know, the newspapers were not releasing information that could get Americans killed. So what changed was that whereas every other war, you know, this kind of apparatus was dismantled, um, what happened after World War II is that Harry Truman decided that the U.S. was going to have to maintain secrecy, was going to have to maintain systems for keeping information from the public. Now, when he first proposed this, there was a big outcry, right? And in fact, you know, the media led the way. And he had to withdraw this, this whole idea. Um, and in fact, it was, it was actually quite embarrassing. It was a public embarrassment to the Truman administration. He only tried a second time and finally succeeded during the Korean War, during this national emergency. And that's when this system became permanent. Now, my sense is that there have been some upsurges in it. I mean, we might have gone from uh, um, an understanding that, you know, only as needed or, or whatever to a sense that there's just an awful lot of things classified that nobody even knows are classified, that are classified almost reflexively. When did that start to happen? When did this start to become a, a different kind of system? So anytime you have a classification system, you're going to have overclassification. And that was true even during the Second World War. And so, you know, one reason why Truman had to withdraw his initial proposal was that a lot of reporters from their own personal experience knew that when you allowed officials to conceal information from the public, they would do it for all kinds of self-interested reasons. You know, so for example, they would conceal uh, the fact that officers were getting home leave at a time when enlisted men, you know, had no such privilege, right? So that wasn't national security information. That was just something they were doing for their own convenience, right? And to avoid public discussion is something they preferred to avoid. So when you get to the 1950s and you have, you know, this system and, and it's growing, 
right away, people began to realize that lots and lots of information is getting classified that shouldn't be. So, for example, you know, the Pentagon undertook a study in 1956, right, just five years into this first executive order creating this kind of secrecy system, you know, outside wartime. And what they found was that overclassification was already a serious problem. So we're talking decades now that people have known this is a problem, and yet in all this time, there has been no really serious and concerted effort to do anything about it. So one of the things that's sort of interesting is who can classify documents. And in doing some of the reading for this show, I ran into the distinction between primary and derivative classification and classifiers. Can you explain who's allowed to decide something's classified? So I'm going to do that, and I'm going to tell you what the rules are. But then we should talk about how this stuff actually works. <laughs> yes, let's do that. <laughs> All right. Because when you talk with people, you know, uh, experts, and some of them really are experts, right, about, about how the system is supposed to work, the first thing they'll tell you is that, oh, yes, it's true. You know, millions of people have security clearances. You know, they might even admit that, oh, yeah, 1.3 million people have top secret security clearances. But then what they like to tell you is how, you know, it's only a very small number of very serious people who are actually allowed to create secrets. right? And in fact, it is a relatively small number. It's a couple thousand people. It goes up and down. But every administration tries to keep that number low. And the reason they do that is because they like to make sure that the people have this power to keep information from the public. They like to make sure that it's only senior officials, typically only people appointed by the president or reporting to the president's own appointees who are allowed to have this power to create secrets. But what happens is once they decide that some program, some technology should be classified as top secret or what have you, everybody else has to classify it at the same level. And of course, all those millions of people with security clearances, every time they're communicating with one another about classified programs and whatnot, they're creating secret information. And in the entire federal government, how many people are allowed to review this information or how many people actually work on reviewing it and deciding what the public is allowed to know? That number is also tiny. It's about 2,000 people. So that's why so much information gets classified and that's why so little of it ever gets out to the public. Is, by the way, I think I might have classified uh, the identity of our guest, or the full identity of our guest. <laughs> Matthew Connolly is a professor of international and global history at Columbia University, the author of the forthcoming book, The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. So is any of this stuff done kind of algorithmically at this point? In other words, if we've already decided that everything about Matthew Con- Connolly is going to be uh, classified, is there just an algorithm that's a bot that's crawling around going, well, then that's classified too? Well, people have, in government, have tried to create systems that would automatically identify information as secret. And I've met people like that. The one reason why I met them, I'm talking now about, uh, for example, something called IARPA, which is the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity. So IARPA is the outfit that is supposed to carry out research for the intelligence community. And the reason I met with them is because IARPA, you know, a decade ago, was directed by the Obama White House to develop technology for declassification. And so here I was, you know, I'm a Columbia professor, but I have colleagues in data science and statistics and whatnot. And a team of us, you know, went down to Washington to present the work that we'd been doing, right? Trying to develop that very thing, algorithms that could automatically prioritize truly sensitive information and have to show you what information could be more rapidly released to the public. And what we found was that the person in charge told us that they had no interest whatsoever in developing technology for declassification. What they wanted to do was to train artificial intelligence so that they could classify information more quickly, more efficiently. 
All right, so I'm I'm sure that's coming. But um, before Chatbot GPT classifies everything that we want to know, it's also worth noting that the Obama administration does appear to have taken some interest in avoiding certain kinds of classification. And one way that we noticed this was in 2019. The pres- President Trump has a phone call with President Vladimir Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine. And the call was quickly moved to um, an intelligence server that was designed to protect highly classified intelligence activities. Not to say that maybe a call like this or the transcript thereof wouldn't have been classified, but it was really put in a place where you couldn't get at it very easily, and there was a big hue and cry about that. And there appeared to be um, some kind of Obama-era executive order that just basically says you you can't classify stuff just because you know you, you you don't want it to come out, you have to actually have a national security argument for it. Tell me how close I'm I'm coming to the the truth there. Well, that's the idea, right? And in <laughs> fact, every president, with one exception, and I'll let you guess who it was, but every president going all the way back to FDR has issued executive orders that are supposed to control the secrecy system. And when you read them, what's really remarkable is that whether you're talking about Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan, these orders are really remarkably consistent. You know, so many presidents come into office, including Carter, you know, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and even Richard Nixon, you know, came into office, you know, telling the public that they were going to be much more transparent and accountable than their predecessors. But what you find is that they end up creating executive orders that do nothing to, you know, diminish the amount of secrets that are produced. In fact, after Carter's executive order, after Clinton's, after Obama's, the number of times officials classified information kept growing. Right. So, yes, there are all these rules. You know, and even now they're talking about a new order where Biden, the Biden administration might put out something that would you know, tighten up the criteria for what's really top secret. And they might you know, limit access to those special access programs so that only really secret stuff gets categorized and contained in that way. But I can tell you what you'd have to do is to change the culture. Right. There is a culture of secrecy and whatever rules you can dream up, you know, officials are going to continue keeping information from the public because that's what's more convenient to them. And it also the last thing is it's basic human psychology. You know, psychologists have studied this. When you stamp random pieces of paper secret, people tend to find those pieces of paper to be the important ones and the ones that you believe. <laughs> so it's playing to a very human tendency, and nothing is going to end until we, the people, get together and decide we have to stop it. Right. We can't uh, let time run out without asking you. I, I, mis- I assume that President Trump or ex-President Trump is incorrect in saying that he can mentally classify things. Right. He's the only president, in fact, if he wanted to create such a rule— he had that power when he was still president. Mm. He could have written his own executive order and he could have said that my own brain waves are going to declassify documents. But he's the only president who didn't even bother. He's the <laughs> only one who never issued an executive order related to secrecy. Right. Presumably he would want his brain waves to classify documents. Whatever, though. His brain waves <laughs> would, would do something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, just to back up to something you said before, and then we're kind of kind of be out of time. But so are you sort of saying that nobody really knows how many documents are classified? There isn't just some keystroke where you, somebody yeah. could just pull up all the classified documents? No, that's absolutely right. And government officials will tell this, will say this themselves. You know, I was just at a conference uh, at UT Austin the other day, and government officials were saying, we just don't know what we have. 
right? People think that there's some kind of audit trail that you know allows them to track these top secret, seriously dangerous documents, but there isn't. You know, back in the old days, they might have you know paper copies, they'd number them, they keep an account, but with few exceptions nowadays, that's just not how it works anymore. They just don't know how many secrets they're creating every year. All right. This this could be an interesting, even longer conversation, but I have to stop now. Matthew Connolly, professor of international and global history at Columbia University, author of the forthcoming book, Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. Thank you so much. Thank you, Colin. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So we're going to talk about communiques, and specifically State Department communiques. The uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, sent out a department-wide memo declaring that for official communiques, the old Times New Roman font would be replaced by Calibri. Uh, we'll uh, get into an explanation of what the difference is between those two things. This is one of our producers, John, Jonathan McPence, should be a guest on this segment because he's so unbelievably fussy about all this stuff. But uh, but he's not. We have an even better guest than you, Jonathan McPants, uh, and that is Juan Villanueva, uh, uh, a typeface designer and educator. Uh, and he is, I should have said Villanueva, sorry. Uh, he is a senior type designer at the Monotype Studio and co-founder of Type Electives, an online school for type design education. Juan Villanueva, welcome to our show. Hey, thank you for having me here. So I guess we have to begin for people who don't follow fonts all that carefully. <laughs> Although, I mean, I think a lot of people do. It's the age we live in uh, that you kind of have to, even if 20, 25 years ago you wouldn't have. So Times New Roman has what's called a serif font. Maybe mm-hmm. explain what that means. 
Yeah, so serif fonts, a serif is basically like the little horizontal dashes, wings, feet. Um, I've seen it called on the letter forms. Uh, and Calibri doesn't have any of that. So that, that is a very visible difference between the two styles of designs. Right. So um, one of the arguments that was proffered for doing this was the idea that somehow or other, particularly for people who have certain disabilities where they uh, get certain kinds of technological assistance, serif fonts are clumsy or perhaps less cooperative with some of the adaptations than a sans serif font would be. Tell us about that. Yeah, of course, there's been many studies uh, about this uh, idea of like accessibility in terms of legibility, like what is more legible for people. Um, I, I would say there is a hotly debated topic in terms of designers and type designers, because no one can really agree. It, it really depends on the context and the audience, which is really important. I think the, the main thing to take away from all of this is that conversations around accessibility are really important. And I'm really happy that the government is having this conversation uh, with the general public. Uh, in terms of making choosing a design that um, offers more potential for being accessible uh, for individuals with disabilities. So it turns out there's sort of an overlay or a series of overlays of all kinds of personal and generational tensions around this. But maybe we should just begin with the fact that uh, people don't like change very much. And so you've got somebody <laughs> who's been in the State Department for 30 years. Uh, I mean, there was an immediate backlash. People are maybe more attached to their fonts than a lot of them even realize until they see something different. Yes, of course. Uh, I like to think of this similar to like fashion or food, you know, <laughs> it's like if someone is trying to introduce something different to you, something that you're used to, um, you might take a second or a minute or a day or even a year to get used to it. Uh, so it's it's very normal. Uh, but like I said, the intentions behind it is what's the most important aspect here. Uh, if it's meant for to be more accessible, I think it, it's worth giving it a shot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously people will have emotions and that's I think that's great because that shows you that typography has an influence, whether we want to or not, is very explicit, but it's also in our subconscious, the way we interact with things. It's everywhere. So, uh, so yeah, it, it's always great when, you know, as a person who makes fonts, whenever I see fonts in the news, it's exciting. <laughs> so, um, Calibri, once again, a sans serif font. And there is this sort of idea that there's a generational overlay here, too, that mm. that millennials would like a sans serif font better than an old person. <laughs> I don't know. Can you can you explain yeah. the, the semiotics here? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so this goes back a little bit to like the, the, the rendering technology for letter forms. Like, you know, back when we first got digital screens, uh, the, the pixel grid, the definition basically was very low. So letters without any details, which are generally sans serif designs, they were better and easier to render. Um, nowadays, that limitation is kind of going away, if not already gone. So um, I would say I grew up in a generation where a lot of the stuff I saw on TV, uh, even on the iPhone when it first came out, it was a sans serif design. So, you know, I've, I've, I've pretty much been molded by that. Uh, at the same time, when I look at printed matter, it's mo mostly like uh, serif designs. So it's it's very interesting to just see how the shifts uh, are happening, both in terms of like uh, web design, uh, in terms of what documents are going to be updated. Uh, but yeah, definitely for sure, a lot of emotions about it. You know, it's like if I'm the next book I'm reading, when it fits in a sensor design, um, it will definitely give me a different experience 
than if it was a serif design. Yeah, I and mean, I would it, obviously be trying to question what, why. Yeah, <laughs> why? Why is this in, in sans serif? And and so it is sort of true that these fonts have personalities, not yes. only personalities within the dichotomy of sans serif versus serif, but individual fonts as well. They have personalities. They also have different levels of utility. In fact. We use Google Docs for everything, and the aforementioned producer, Jonathan McPants, uh, talked about trying to switch one of the docs to Calibri for a minute the other day, and he says, it's just too slight for this context. Uh, we'd have to jump it up to 18 points. We should say the State Department is asking for 14-point Calibri, which, yeah. one, oddly enough, is how I operate. I've turned it, maybe I'm actually in the State Department, I didn't know it, because I've been, if you get something from me, the chances that it's going to be in 14-point Calibri are very high. So... Talk a little bit about the like the what's the personality of Calibri? Does it have a specific vibe to it? Um, that yes, I, I was thinking about this. What is Times New Roman versus Calibri? And again, I'll bring this back to fashion because I think of Times New Roman as a pair of dress pants. You know, it's it's comfortable. <laughs> you look professional to a certain extent, but Calibri to me is is comfortable. It's open. It's accessible in the sense of that it not only has forms that are open and legible. Uh, but also it has a much wider uh, character set, which means it supports uh, languages more than Times New Roman. Now, I would probably think of Calibri as kind of like sweatpants. Uh, they're very comfortable and I enjoy wearing them. That said, there's still a lot of range between what kind of sweatpants you can get, right? Uh, so Calibri is probably the most comfortable kind. <laughs> I'm starting to understand why I like Calibri so much. Uh, so... <laughs> yeah. so Maybe also just talk a little bit because um, a font has to, to, to the point of Mr. McPants, it has to live in a lot of different ecosystems, right? I mean, it has to be printable onto a page if something should be printed out. It's got to work on screens. It's maybe got to work on somebody's phone. So, um, are the are different fonts better or worse in those kinds of situations? Uh, yes, but it ultimately comes down to like point size. Yeah. Uh, so Calibri at 14 points and Times Roman at 14 point are going to work pretty much everywhere. Uh, so at, at that point, it becomes a little bit more about aesthetics. Uh, but if, if we bring back the conversation to, to accessibility, I think, again, that is probably the biggest, the biggest change, like point size. And, and then also not to forget that fonts live within an ecosystem of design. So the way they use the fonts is also going to be impactful for readers. Right, because it's a little bit bigger, it's a different design, it's gonna cause perhaps documents to get longer. Uh, it also gives a different vibe. And again, you know, open to all of these changes and kind of like looking forward to see how people react, not just uh, just at, at the beginning of the shock of, you know, something different, but as they start using it, like what kind of feedback are designers going to get in terms of now this, this idea of sensor being more accessible and legible is now being put to use in the government, which is huge. So, yeah, what kind of conversations will come out of that? I think that is something interesting to think about. Were you surprised by this decision? Just to go back to your your analogy, um, if you know, this is the State Department, and these are official communiques, and if we're switching from Brooks Brothers to Land's End or, or L.L. Bean, you know, in other words, I, I don't know, diplomacy isn't a casual activity. It's an official activity that's tinctured by formality at all times. Uh, were you surprised that the State Department wanted to move in the direction that it moved? Um, it's it's always surprising when a font change happens. <laughs> uh, I think it also is a, it's a sign of the times, you know, like Times New Roman came in 
2004. It's been there for 19 years. It's time for it to go to college and maybe something else to come in. Um, <laughs> and Calibri is going to do that job. And like I said, uh, sweatpants is is an analogy in the sense that it's comfortable. It's not going to you know raise any eyebrows other than it's different. Uh, so in that sense, it's also not necessarily like a low end kind of sweatpants. It's it's a very comfortable one that is is probably can probably you know fit in and not. Uh, cause any issues apart from just being different from times to roaming. Yeah, I've got some carbon to cobalt sweatpants that are like <laughs> they're like eighty bucks or something, you know. So yeah, it's a nice sweatpant, is what you're saying. Yeah, and it's accessible in the sense that it's also you know available for uh, for most uh, users of computers and also people that are reading. So that's another thing to consider. So uh, you sort of already answered this question, but let me just say it one more time. I, I assume that you kind of enjoy this kind of debate. I mean, fonts, although I think they are fussed over more than they ever were before. And by the way, I really recommend that everybody read other font, <laughs> uh, other fonts I hope the State Department uh, considered by our friend Alexand- Alexandra Petri, which was terrific and walks you through, you know, why you can't use Comic Sans uh, for your State Department communications. But you, this must be kind of fun for you in a way to see, get people so energized about something. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, like, Type is something you see everywhere when you wake up, even until you go to bed. So uh, the fact that they're start talking about like different influences, different emotions, and I would probably link it back to there's people making fonts <laughs> because, you know, like I go to a party and people never met a type designer before and I get to explain what it is and I get to put a human face through the letter forms that everyone is seeing. Uh, at the same time, it's also kind of a a field where you can just recede into the background and let the letters do the talking, if you will. That's beautifully put. We're going to fax you a picture of uh, Jonathan McPants so you can avoid him at future parties. <laughs> uh, but meanwhile, Von, uh, Juan Villanueva, typeface designer and educator, senior type designer at the Monotype Studio and co-founder of Type Electives, an online school for type design education. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And as we head out here, I'm telling you that some very nice people are going to ask you to help us out with fundraising. It's the first day. If you do it during our show, it really helps us out a lot. Our advances lead us to And we are back. Our technical producer today is Kat Pastor. As usual, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She produced this episode, so thanks to her. Should we thank Pants? All he's doing, he's in the dock just fussing about fonts. That's all he's done all day is just, like, complain to us. Uh, even this segment, he's got complaining about a font that's in Georgia that's a little part of the document. So... Anyway, uh, <laughs> we're moving from font to uh, the notion of exercise. Uh, joining us now is Cody Musselman, uh, a postdoctoral research associate at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. She is working on a book called Spiritual Exercises, Fitness and Religion in Modern America. Welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, you know, we should probably begin with the fact that exercise and religion haven't uh, always been dichotomous in America. I mean, you can even go back to the sort of post-Civil War era, and there was this sort of notion that exercise and godliness had something to do with one another and, and, and maybe even some programs that came out of that as people began to pursue wellness in various stages in America, right? The, the Exercise hasn't necessarily been secular for, for all of its American history. 
That's exactly right. Yeah, I think it's actually uncommon to think of exercise as something that is secular. So that moment that you're pointing us to, we see the rise of, of a movement called muscular Christianity, in which there was a fear that men were becoming too effeminate, that they weren't going to church enough, and that any men that were Christian uh, were not embodying it in the best possible way. And that's so they were losing their faith and losing their manliness all at once. And so pairing manliness with physical fitness with a newfound physical culture movement um, with muscularity became a thing at that time. Although it could also be argued that there, the linkage was made very, very clear, too. I mean, nobody was under any illusions about what was being talked about. I, I wonder if it's quite the same today, although before we get into that, I, I would like to play a little clip here of uh, John Foley, a co-founder and former CEO of Peloton. This is in a 2017 talk at Code Commerce. This is C1Cat. That stuff that happened on Sunday morning at church or in your synagogue is still important to human beings, I believe. It's still something humans want, but they're not getting as much of it from their organized religion. People want fitness and they want something else. Inter-instructor-led group fitness classes, replete with the candles on the altar and somebody talking to you from a pulpit for 45 minutes. The parallels are uncanny, right? You think about in the 70s and 80s, you'd have a cross on your neck or a Star of David. Now you have a soul cycle tank top. That's your identity. That's your community. That's your religion. So it's not really a stealth connection exactly. I mean, if you call a company soul cycle, you're not exactly concealing it. But I don't know. Are, are we, are consumers completely clear on the kind of thing that he's talking about there? Um, what do you mean by that question? Well, I guess I, I'm sort of, you know, people think that they're going to get exercise, uh, but if in fact they are going to get exercise under kind of the umbrella of some sort of spiritual improvement or spiritual connection. Um, well, actually, let's just even back it up. Let's back it away from Soul Cycle. So people go to yoga all the time. And in yoga, uh, they hear a lot of Sanskrit words. Uh, they uh, often hear things that, that are kind of evocative uh, of Hindu spirituality. Uh, if they go to yoga a lot, they'll get invited to go to Kirtan some night, you know, where there'll be more chanting and writing things down on pieces of paper and burning them and stuff like that. So, you know, it could be argued that people who think that they're practicing yoga on a secular level are kidding themselves, but but react to that. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And I think the piece that played by Foley is just so evocative. You know, what is spirituality doing in the marketplace? What is it doing in our fitness world? Um, and how are people reacting to this being so blatant? You know, some people really don't like it. They don't want any kind of spirituality, religion in their world of fitness and think that the pairing of the two of them um, is just some sort of sly version of conversion, you know, like keep it away from me. Um, but you're right, there are these historical lineages. You have uh, yoga, which is very you know, explicit about you know, paying homage to its Hindu roots. And at the same time, you also have, you know, a company like Core Power, in which you can go do yoga to pop music, and you could never hear a Sanskrit word. Um, so there's this sort of constant interplay between how people want 
some sort of spiritual connection. They want their physical movement to mean something more. They want to feel connected to people in the room. And then the people that get in there and they think, whoa, 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 this is too weird. You know, I already have a bad taste for religion in my mouth and I don't want religion in my fitness at all. Right. There's a sort of an uh, approach avoidance thing that goes on. And I mean, if you go to a lot of yoga classes, you're going to run into yoga teachers who are kind of pissed off that what is essentially a spiritual practice in India has been turned into a workout program in America. There are some instructors who don't like that, who sort of feel like, oh, no, you're actually losing a big part of this. It's really about breath and spirit and all kinds of stuff like that. But at the same time, uh, yeah, we, we might have tried to turn yoga into a workout program, but we are attracted to some of these soul cycle type programs. And I'm wondering about that. I wonder, if, we, first of all, whether it might be connected to the idea of flow, uh, you know, that coinage that was done by the guy whose name I can never pronounce, but the, that idea that you, you have kind of a loss of self, self and surroundings and you get into a kind of groove that relieves you of certain kinds of temporal consciousness, that st- starts to sound more and more religious the more you rephrase it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think something that's so appealing about exercise is its ability to, you know, refocus your mind or unfocus your mind. You can be focusing only on the breath, only on the count of burpees that you're doing or the number of squats that you're doing. You're diverted from the stresses of everyday life um, to thinking either about the pain and suffering that you're experiencing now or just making it through the next moment, the next movement. Um, So that's one thing that I think for the mind exercise is really compelling and can sort of catapult you into something that can feel spiritual-esque, as you were saying, you know, we could call it flow. It's also sort of a cocktail of different chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, all these things that are um, mixing together to make us feel good. And, you know, religions have also been sort of at the forefront of these bodily techniques and technologies for thinking about how do we manipulate the body and its ability to produce this chemical cocktail to make us have some kind of experience in which we can be more in tune with the divine or we can feel something akin to the divine. And so, you know, whether that's doing something like sitting for long periods of time, whether it's meditation, whether it's... um, you know, sleep deprivation, whether it's imbibing or consuming some other kind of chemical, you have ayahuasca ceremonies, um, psilocybin, there's different ways that people have tried to sort of change the mind through practices of the body. And religion has really been thinking for a long time of, of how do we create that connection? How do we create something that psychologists might call flow that can make us just have a different state of consciousness in which we can think about what is beyond us, what is greater. So some people might say, well, so what's the harm then? What's the harm if people go to Soul Cycle or, or anything else like that and and either bring with them or receive almost unwittingly some spiritual messages? On the other hand, Soul Cycle itself has had some kind of bad publicity over the years that doesn't sound all that different from some of the bad publicity that has attended certain religious movements. And I think there is a sense that under the guise of religion and spiritual improvement and connection to a higher power, People will put up with things that they might not put up with under other circumstances. There's a way in which we suspend some of our objections because we think we're participating in something really important. And I, I wonder how you feel about that and how that might fit into people joining exercise movements that are a little bit, for the want of a better word, culty. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're pointing to are the power dynamics at play, especially when you have a charismatic leader. And so 
fitness businesses like SoulCycle are pretty explicit about wanting to hire charismatic people, people that you want to be like, people that you want to follow, and people that will be successful at getting you into a state of flow or getting you into a state of sort of positive self-regard. And so that is very alluring. And with that comes a certain kind of power imbalance. Um, something that I often think about with these fitness groups uh, in the way that they are compared to religion is that with religious leaders, you often have some kind of training around moments in people's lives, like how to handle death and dying, um, how to handle sort of at home domestic violence and abuse. Some of these like really difficult moments in people's lives where they need that pastoral care. And I think pastoral care and counseling happens in so many places outside of organized religion. And so I wonder, you know, are these instructors getting commensurate training? How do they handle moments when after a yoga class, after a soul cycle class, somebody comes up to them and says, you know, I, I think I need to divorce my husband. Your class made me realize X, Y, Z. Uh, those can be hard moments. And this is not to say that religions have done it better, right? As you point out, there's a long history of abuse among religious leaders as well. Uh, but I think what they do possibly have going for them for some of the more institutionalized religions um, is a vetting process for who gets to be sort of its leaders and its counselors and some kind of training. And so I think the longer that these fitness businesses think about providing spiritual care and counseling to people, they might also think about, you know, how can we further um, credentialize our leaders so that they can be equipped to handle these very human moments that enter into the gym, just as they might enter into a church or a synagogue. I think, you know, another part of what you're saying, too, is whether we're talking about yoga, reiki, tai chi, acupuncture, biohacking, crystal gong baths, tantric healing. I mean, there's a lot of this kinds of stuff, ayahuasca, you mentioned. But there's also, I think, kind of a sense at times when there's a spiritual component that I am somehow protected. Um, I, I was in an Anna Forest class, yoga class one time where uh, a guy said, you know, I think I'm about to throw up and pass out. And one of the instructors goes, well, that's going to happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, no, it's like 102 degrees in here. And this guy just said he was about to pass out. It made me think of those, you know, those early Southern uh, Christian snake handling and strychnine taking movements where, you know, the pastor would let a rattlesnake bite him and say, I'm protected. I'm protected by Jesus. You know, th there's a way in which, yeah, you're talking about training, some pastoral counseling training for the person going through a divorce. But mm -hmm. I think there also can be some real magical thinking about our bodies that might be a little bit reckless. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Human bodies can only withstand so much. Um, so that's a real concern, too. Absolutely. All right. So um, any final thoughts here? I mean, any final thoughts about where you think this is all headed? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, I'm fascinated by the increased you know, marketization, having more and more sort of religious and spiritual offerings as part of the marketplace. And I do kind of wonder, A, if that will continue, or B, if there'll be some kind of backlash to it. You know, if Gen Z will want to have more, you know, free communal offerings that aren't behind a paywall. I, I feel like that could be what's coming next, is that more, more fitness programs in the park, um, 
And as we see with the pandemic, lots of online free offerings. So maybe that'll just continue to proliferate. I don't know. It's hard to predict the future, but uh, I feel like the the connection between spirituality and fitness will not go away. But I'm interested to see what form it'll take next. Well, I'm interested to see when Cody Musselman's book, Spiritual Exercises, Fitness and Religion (laughs) in Modern America, comes out. It's a fascinating topic. Thanks for being with us today. And thanks to you for being with us today. Some nice people are going to ask you to participate in our pledge drive. Please do. 